What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Scott Benjamin. And I'm Ben Bullen. And we're back with part two of our hopefully intriguing Dale story. Oh, that's right. We need to do a recap. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Uh, Noel, can we get some recap music? Previously on Car Stop. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You no, love to do that. Cut the music. I that's do like love a, to do that. That's, uh, that's your typical lost intro, right? Um, you know, we have to be careful with that joke. I've made it so many times now. It's kind of antique. You know, it's <laughs> it's all right. Worn around the edges. It still works. Let's them know that we're, uh, we're up for part two. Yeah. So a uh, quick recap. Usually if you're listening to a multi-podcast episode that we do, um, we try to make them somewhat independent so that, you know, if you say, oh, I, I just want to hear the end or I just want to hear the beginning, that you don't have to listen to all of these. But if you have yet to listen to part one of our Dale Carr episode, you've got to stop now and listen to the first one. I'll give you a quick recap just to catch you up if you already listened. We're talking about a very strange car in the 1970s called the Dale. It was a three-wheeler with a motorcycle engine. It was going to, according to its promoters, revolutionize the car industry. The two key players in here are a designer named Dale Cliff, for whom the car is named, and the CEO uh, at that time, the, the chief promoter of this, a lady named Liz Carmichael. And when we left off, they were at a point very similar to that of Preston Tucker when he was beginning work with the Tucker Corporation. What we mean by that is that they were financing their growing company by selling uh, dealership franchises and stuff like that. They were also... Um, Offering, offering stock. Offering stock, which got them into a similar sort of situation that Preston Tucker had earlier, which is the government started sniffing around, and Uncle Sam actually, through a uh, California business regulator, told them that they could no longer sell stock in their corporation. And when we left off, there was starting to be a little, what was the phrase we used? Trouble in paradise. A little trouble in paradise because uh, that was when the uh, the car and driver um, photographer went went to the 
the Dale factory, supposedly, to, uh, yes. to meet with Liz Carmichael and see the Dale for himself. And what he found, Ben, was not all that impressive. You remember he um, he found a vehicle that was surrounded first by guys that were scribbling on clipboards, you know, that had Clark Kent-style glasses on, you know, lab coats, I'm sure, that were trying to look very important as they're marking right. notes down no on, their, on the boards. Wheel. Yeah, he no. uh, when they leave, he finds, yeah, no steering wheel. He finds a Briggs & Stratton lawnmower engine under the hood of this thing. Um, realized right away that the entire thing was a scam, but that wasn't it, Ben. There was a, a lot more coming, and we're going to get fairly quickly to our big story twist here in just a minute, but he realized quickly, this uh, this car and driver... Um, uh, Mike Salisbury. Yeah, Mike Salisbury, the photographer, the reporter. He realized that uh, this this car wasn't even close to production ready. It was just, there was nothing that was right about this. The you know the manpower, the vehicle, the owner, nothing mm-hmm. was right about it. And there's kind of a um, funny little story, I guess, about how he met the owner. You know how he met with Liz Carmichael. Mm-hmm. Um, he says that you know when he, after he's done looking at this vehicle, you know there's a um, all of a sudden in the you know one corner of the garage there's the the honking of an air horn and this big Lincoln. Continental rolls up, and it was an exact match to Elvis Elvis Presley's personal car, except that this one had gold monograms. Um, <laughs> the door opens, and a large woman steps out. Now that's Liz Carmichael. Remember the way we described her? She was like six two. Yes, between six and six two. Yeah, two hundred twenty five pounds. She was a, a big woman, right? Tall, and um, as she gets out, she's wearing a pale yellow pantsuit, open toed high heeled pumps and a long Shirley Temple wig, and she's got a cigarette in one hand, and she walks around the Lincoln to greet him, and she says, hello, I'm Elizabeth, but her voice sounded like that of Broderick Crawford's. Now, Broderick Crawford, that was, uh, he was an actor from around that time. He did a lot of um, police dramas, I think. He was an older gentleman. He had a deep, deep voice, Ben. Yeah, right. That's the, uh, that's the, that's the joke there. Now, um, it's, it's weird that, I guess at the time, right now, it sounds very, very sexist for us in the modern age to be hearing all these descriptions of this lady and dwelling on her physical appearance. But also you have to remember uh, that's part of the environment in which people moved at that time. Yeah. It was uh, – I think it was probably very tough work to be a female CEO. Um, probably. A lot so, of scrutiny. A lot of scrutiny. And, uh, you know, speaking of scrutiny – uh, author Richard Smith, who was that friend of Dale's we mentioned in our previous episode, uh, the guy who literally wrote a book on Dale, uh, Richard Smith shares some of the concerns that Mike Salisbury carried, uh, which is that he was skeptical about this project pretty much from the beginning because Richard worked at the GM assembly plant in uh, California and he understood that there were certain logistics involved in mass production. Yeah, once you see a full operation of, of what it takes to make a car, then you realize if you look at you know what they found in the Dale plant, the supposed Dale plant, um, there just wasn't anything there that would imply that they're even intending to make vehicles. Right. So, uh, for instance, the you know just just to go off of this. Uh, one of the big things that you have to do when you're beginning to manufacture a car is you have to line up a supply chain way in advance. Yeah, far, far ahead of time. And there's not just that. I mean, you've got to load, you've got to, to um, get the machinery in place and you've got to get right. the manpower in place. Right. And you've got to, there's just so much that goes along, all the licensing that's involved. I mean, it, it has yeah. to happen. Um, and I'm going to say almost years in advance, really. I mean, you've got, I, to, I think you, you've got to lay the groundwork for this whole thing to really work. And all of this is leading to a point where, um, Dale Clift is finally beginning to open his eyes completely. Now, I know we mentioned that earlier that, you know, once he said that, 
or once the CEO claimed that this vehicle would get reach 70 miles per gallon, right? Clift said, wait a minute, I don't think that our vehicle can do that, but but he's still kind of held yeah, on. Yeah, I'll, I'll hang in there and see what you've got, uh, what you got up your sleeve, Liz. But once he finally said that, here's what, here's what kind of broke the, the straw that broke the camel's back, right, I guess, right, is right, when, right. when Carmichael finally claimed that she had crashed a Dale into the wall at 30 miles per hour without being hurt. Ah, but here's the thing, says Richard Smith. Uh, they didn't actually have a car that could go 30 miles an hour. Yeah, so guess what this causes Cliff to do? Cliff, he uses his, he leaves all his personal papers with Smith. So he's, he's covering his trail, right? He's saying, he's saying here, I'm, I'm, if anything happens to me, here's all my personal papers and where to, where to keep these. And he started carrying a handgun in his pickup truck with him at all times, which sounds like there's more to this story than we actually know. Uh, but at this point, we see things <laughs> begin to <laughs> unravel. Ben, I've got to say something here. Okay. Yes. So, you know, th- this is where a second cease and desist order is filed, right? So in December, the California Corporation Commission, uh, sets up a second cease and desist order on the company, you know, saying you can't sell stock, you can't sell dealerships, you can't sell distributorships, right. none of that, right? Well, we, we said that, you know, he's carrying this handgun and, and it's kind of, you said it sounds like it hints at there's something else going on within the corporation. Well, in the same year, I don't know if this is in late 74 or early 75, I'm not sure, Adele was on display at the L.A. Auto Show. It was on yep. the floor of the auto show in in that time. Ah, uh, yeah. And yep. drumming up attention. And the company's PR guy, who was back at the Encino office, was murdered, Ben. He was shot to death by another employee within the Dale Corporation. Right. And this is what really, I think, was prompting Dale himself, Dale the man, to walk around strapped. Maybe. Because... uh at this point, Liz and Dale have had a huge fallout, and Liz has essentially told Dale, hit the road, Jack, and uh, this employee murder situation didn't do anything to help or no, no, that no. relationship. All, all that heated up pretty quick, and uh, there's a lot of pressure on Liz, you know, because what's going on here within the company. And, you know, also they're, they're really starting to dig into – all right. Well, where is your, you know, what's your, what is your supply chain? Who do who you have lined up for, um, you know, the materials for the body shell that you claim is bulletproof or, you know, the, the glass is bulletproof rather. Right. Um, where, where are the engines coming from? How are you going to get those from BMW? And, you know, all of this information is just not, you know, matching up with, uh, with the people that are investigating them. So <laughs> the company moves its headquarters to Dallas, Texas in, in January of 1975. Right. And by March of 1975, the, you know, that, that didn't last too long. I guess by March of 1975, uh, they seized all of the assets of the company, of the, uh, of the 20th century, uh, what do you call it? The 20th century motor car corporation. Yeah. Assets um, are seized. Yeah. The indictments are passed out. Um, there are no cars, no factory, no prospects for future production. <laughs> Isn't that something? So, so Carmichael has really, she's fled the state. Yeah. Uh, she's been caught and she flees one, she flees once again. You know, uh, she gets away somehow. Now, um, I guess the um there's a there's an article in People Weekly that that kind of clears all this up right. and this is where uh this is where the twist comes in Ben because she flees the scene there in Dallas, Texas and she gets away and I saw one one um I guess description of this where you know as she left the house they came in to to raid the house and to to gather her up you know to find yeah. her um, and I think that the dinner that she had placed on the table for the night was still warm. Wow. So that's how, how quickly she got away. You know, it was like within minutes. And then they, they found her in Miami, right? Yeah. Where she was, uh, uh, she was under an assumed name. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Uh, but 
before we go on to what happened next, let's take a brief pause. Let's feel the suspense, you know, let's yeah. let it ride out. This is the big twist coming up. This is the big one. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development, and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. I, oh, I guess we should get back to the show. Yeah, you know what? Let, let me let me start by saying that you know when she fled the um you know her Dallas Texas headquarters or where she had, had set up as headquarters. Right. She left behind a lot of different things. She left behind. Now this is something that puzzled authorities. Okay. Uh, some of these things that she she left behind were wigs, Who's hair that? remover, well padded bras. And of course, she abandoned the the one hundred thousand dollar home that she was in itself, which was unusual to begin with. And um, they said that she shared this home with children as well, which I'm, I'm not five quite children. sure. Of. Yeah, five children. Now, this is where the mystery starts to uh, just starts to even unravel even greater, Ben. Right. Mm-hmm. So, what happens at this point? So, she is eventually spotted, right, yeah, yeah. and arrested in Miami. In Miami, so she's made it a you know halfway across the country, right? And it turns out that this widow with a $100,000 home in Dallas uh, was not actually named Liz Carmichael at all. No kidding. What was her real name, Ben? His name was Jerry Dean Michael. His name? His name. That is right. It turns out that Liz Carmichael, in addition to being dishonest with her investors about the Dale Carr, was dishonest with 
everyone about her real identity on so many levels. Even her gender. Even her gender. Even her gender. Yes, so this sir. is a man. This is a man all along. Uh, again, Jerry Dean Michael, and he was 47 years old, and he was a fugitive mm-hmm. uh, since 1961. He's been hiding out, you know, trying to live this life lifestyle as a as a female. Been a criminal the whole time. As a way to get away as part of a counterfeiting scheme that he was busted for, or should have been busted for, back in the early 1960s. So... This thing is a deception right from the very beginning all along. I mean, look, look, look back at everything we've told you, you know, now knowing that this was a man all along yeah. and things change a little bit. Well, yeah, the uh, so they know it was definitely uh, Jerry Dean Michael because they have fingerprints from this earlier charge. Mm-hmm. Now, based on Carmichael's own comments, uh, it seemed that she'd undergone a sex change. So this... This wasn't really, I guess, so much. I, you have to wonder, like, it doesn't seem as though it's just trying to assume a false identity to get away with a crime now, so much as it sounds like a, a legitimate uh, transgender well, situation. Well, but they found out later that there was no surgery. Right. And the only yeah. thing that was really happening, there, there was no surgery right, but, yet. Yet. Right. But what had happened was she had taken just a boatload of hormones and that gave her the female appearance that that it was uh, that she was going for, I guess. And I don't want to get too deep into this because you can look into this as much as you want. But right. um, what was going on was she she hadn't had the official full on surgery yet. And I I'm guessing Ben that a lot of this money that was you know being you know dredged up for the for the Dale was yeah. going to go towards that surgery. That's my guess. Right, and it's the '70s, so this stuff is a. Uh just medically speaking, it's a very different environment. Um, during her trial, however, she did ask to be referred to as a woman. She was granted uh, that right. And apparently, as Jerry Dean Michael, she had been married. Really? And got divorced. So this is all so confusing to me. This is all out of the. So when she's the mother of, the of when she says she's the mother of five children, he may have had five children. At some point. Right, yeah. Which, again, this is so tough to piece together looking back. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, if you got your hands on the original police files, it would be a little bit more clear. But, yeah. you know, the stories that we have here, they've got a yeah. few holes in them as far as, you know, looking back, you know, everything we've told you to this point, if you look back and, and say, well, this was a man, how did how did that happen? How did right. this work out? Um Pretty, pretty difficult. Anyways, you can piece it all together for yourself. Look up the story of the Dale. It's really interesting. But right, so um, this isn't yeah. the end of the story yet. No, not at all. Because uh, I'm glad you mentioned the police file because it'd be more like a police book. So uh, Carmichael's legal woes. It's true, discrimination is rampant in the 70s, right? But Carmichael's legal woes have nothing to do with her gender. Uh, so we mentioned that as Jerry Michael, she had the counterfeiting conviction. That ended up being dismissed, but she had more than two dozen charges of stock fraud, conspiracy, mm-hmm. grand theft in L.A. court. Um, no one knows exactly how much uh, money was involved in the fraud that she pulled with Dale. Because they couldn't find the way well, they couldn't find the books to begin with. There were right. no well, there were no books, really. It's all um, cash, all cash, uh, cash deals. And, you know, they think there's a couple different numbers here. Now, Carmichael always hired bodyguards to carry away the money. So no one really knew what was their total. Right. And I guess they, they found orders for they did find receipts for orders up to two million dollars uh, for people that had invested in the vehicle. However, it's estimated that more than five thousand customers 
were built out of as much as $6 million total. So we're talking about a $4 million deficit in what they knew was there and still couldn't find. Right. And, you know, what, what was there in reality, likely, and they couldn't find as well. You know, so she's got as much as $6 million uh, squirreled away somewhere. Right. Now, Dale Clift, you would think that he was getting rich off of this as well, along with Carmichael, right? Yep. But he was not. He was still uh, kind of the innocent in this whole thing because, um, and I, I say innocent because he never really profited from it. Um, he was involved in it, but he had his suspicions early on, and he was being duped all along just with everybody. Right, yeah, he was being exploited as much as anybody else, but instead of his money being stolen, it was his dream, which I think is uh, even more grievous. Exactly, that that is dream, and if you want to talk money, he did receive he received two checks. He received one that was for one thousand and one dollars, and that was uh, that was, you know, part of what Liz Carmichael had promised him. Um, you know, she had well, she had actually promised him three million total, and this was kind of the the initial payment, right? Here's a thousand and one dollars as kind of good faith money, and then she gave him another check that was a two thousand dollar check, and that one bounced. So <laughs> a two thousand dollar check never made it through the bank, but uh, he was promised three million dollars and didn't receive more than the one thousand and one dollars, you know, for uh, I guess the destruction of his dream, really. Here's another thing. It turns out that um, when Liz Carmichael represented herself in court, she was actually really good at it. Represented herself. You know who else did that? Ted Bundy. <laughs> and, you know, he, he also did a reasonable job, I guess, yeah, if you want to say. He was dental smart. records match. Exactly. And he was crazy also. You know, that, there's also that. And so was, so was Liz Carmichael. Crazy but, like a fox, Well, bro. okay, so... I, I enjoy watching clips of people representing themselves in court. It's always pretty hilarious what goes on. You love true crime, well, man. Well, yeah, I do. But, you know, they say that, you know, like they say, Bundy was reasonable at representing himself. He was a smart man. Yeah. If, if you want to take that out of the whole story. He was smart, but, you know, he, he also was very arrogant. And I would guess that Liz Carmichael was smart, but also very arrogant. Well, if you have, if you have the kind of... Maybe we shouldn't say uh, mental disorder. That... Mental disposition. Yeah. Okay. There we to, go. Uh, to to think that you're to think that you're so much smarter than everybody else, you're going to think that you can beat the losses. The yeah. The there's, I mean, there's a level of narcissism just inherent both in serial killers like Ted Bundy and in um, serial fr- uh, con men or con folk rather, and. Uh, one one thing that's interesting, just totally unrelated. Did you see? Um, I think he was he was a guy who was defending himself in D.C. for uh, some murders on a subway or something. Mm. He defended himself in court, and I, I can't correctly recall this, but he accused over the course of his defense, he accused pretty much everybody in the room of doing the murders. So wow! He would question, "What? How do you know it wasn't?" Can you point to the person who committed this mm. alleged crime? Yeah, this is part of why it's so entertaining to watch someone defend themselves. And the witness would say, uh, yeah, it's, it's you. And he would say, are you sure it wasn't you? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely, it's an, it's, uh, I don't know, it's a, an exercise in insanity, really. Well, point being, it's also an exercise in arrogance, as you said. True. So, uh, this, but, this but, goes up, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, no, but no. I want to say that, you know, during the, during the court trial, she also, uh, kind of you know, draws parallels between herself and Henry Ford and Preston Tucker and other heads of industry, or, or Preston Tucker would have been a head of industry, I guess. But um, she she draws these parallels that say, well, I don't see why what I'm doing is any different than what Henry Ford did, because he had an idea at the beginning as well. But 
He also had something to stand behind. He also had a working model of a car, which they never really had. If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian. Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. It's as easy as reaching for boxed instead of bottled water. It's as easy as opting for beauty products that come in paper packaging. It's as easy as grabbing eggs in a cardboard container. And that's all in one trip to the grocery store, which, if we're being honest, you were planning to go to anyway. But paper isn't just an easy choice. Papertarians know that it's the smart choice, too. Because paper comes from trees, a renewable and sustainably managed resource. And paper products are designed to be recycled. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to talk about and go through all the things that are sometimes difficult to process alone. We're going to go over how to regulate your emotions, diving deep into holistic personal development and just building your mindset to have a happier, healthier life. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy, right? And basically have conversations that can help us get through this crazy thing we call life. I already believe in myself. I already yeah. see myself. And so when people give me an opportunity, I'm just like, oh, great, you see me too. We'll laugh together, we'll cry together and find a way through all of our emotions. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right. Like, as we mentioned in the conclusion of our Tucker series, uh, at one point in the trial, they say, look, we're not making fake cars. They're parked outside. Hop in one and take a ride with us. And by the way, I have another, I don't know, I'm going to make up a number, 15 that are still on the assembly line at my enormous factory that is now shut down because of this trial. If we could just wrap this up, I could produce cars. Yeah, no, it's fairly obvious uh, from our references to Preston Tucker that Scott and I believe he was shut down by somebody else, maybe one of the big three. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is not the case. This is not the best comparison, well, but she is persuasive. And that's the angle that she plays along the way the whole time as well, that, you know, this is the big three coming down on her. And if you listen back to everything we've told you about, you know, the, the mock-ups of the cars and the prototypes and the deceptive methods that she's used to sell stock in the vehicles and, and um, you know, the, the brochures that make claims that are definitely not true, all these things about the Dale... I mean, it just it just shows you that, you know, I don't know. It just shows you that, that this lady from the very beginning was 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 nothing but no good for this guy, for this Dale Clift guy. Right. Yeah. I mean, it shows you that, you know, all along there really wasn't ever the plan to to build 
a production vehicle, I don't think. In her mind, it was just a matter of bilking people out of this, this investment, out of getting, getting the funds built up and then, and then leaving town. At least, yeah, that's, I mean, that's how it seems. I don't know. It, it's very difficult to say what somebody's intentions are yeah. because those take place in your mind, but the actions are entirely the actions of someone who is just out to defraud people. And all along, she said the big three are out to get her. You know, she's going to crush Detroit. She's going to rule it like a queen is what she said, you know, along the way. So, right. you know, she was definitely, uh, you know, playing the, uh, I don't know the martyr. I guess you know that she was. Uh, she was just you know, another sacrifice. Can I read the? Um, do you mind if I read the review from Car and Driver? Sure. Okay. So Car and Driver, of course, you guys remember we mentioned Mike Salisbury, another person working for Car and Driver, uh, writes a recap about the about the vehicle uh, upon which Liz Carmichael has staked her her claim to fame. Uh, he says it had an Onan portable generator engine fed by a lawnmower carburetor stuck on the end of a sloppily welded lead pipe. The rear end was an old Ford differential cut in half mounted to one wheel. The transmission, a Toyota automatic, was stuck into the rear end with no drive shaft. It was literally held together with baling wire and coat hangers. It was just really gross. Oh my gosh, what a description. For a, for, for a technical magazine like car and driver at least a, a magazine that should be able to articulate a lot of this stuff for them to end on it was just really gross <laughs> an engine that was uh, had a carburetor uh, a lawnmower carburetor stuck on the end of a sloppily welded lead pipe that's funny I all of this is funny I no mean, drive shaft i mean oh my gosh and, and this is the car that they're presenting to car and driver to drum up attention and how the heck did they get on the floor of the la auto show with this car how did they how did they do that that's Persuasiveness amazing. I guess very, very persuasive. Leaders. Now, now, okay, this whole story isn't over yet because now Carmichael was eventually convicted of 26 counts of fraud. Took the jury 16 days, by the way. I don't know why. 26 counts of fraud. Now, for some weird station, a local, or some reason rather, a local television station posted bail of $50,000 on her behalf. And I don't know why that happened, but of course she fled. You know, she exhausted her appeals and she fled and where did she go to, Ben? She went, um, uh, they eventually oh. found, oh, she found, they found her in Dale, Texas of all places. Hey, oh. Eventually. But this is after, and this is another weird twist in this. This is after, um, an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, you know, the NBC true crime show that had Robert Stack. A huge fan, by the way. They, uh, I am too. They, uh, they profiled Liz Carmichael or, um, what was his name? Jerry something? Uh, yeah, Jerry Dean Michaels. And this, uh, she was on the run. For nine years, so it wasn't until eighty nine. That show was so effective. By the yeah, way. That, they, I mean, within two weeks, within two weeks, they captured Liz Carmichael again, uh, who is now known as Catherine Elizabeth Johnson. Right. In, again, in Dale, Texas, which I find very uh, humorous. She was a florist at this point. <laughs> yeah, florist. And uh, they said that she may have had she had some kids living with her at the time, I believe. And this is a, it's another twist, man. There's all these twists to it now. They said that, you know, once she, she served her time, finally, she served, um, she was arrested two weeks after the show aired and she was sent to prison in California. So she returns to Austin after serving her time and she's what they call the mastermind behind a lucrative scheme that employed a team of homeless men to sell roses on the street corner. I just want to point out that I don't think that's illegal. Is I, don't, it? I don't think so, but it's like one of these like, fringes of society thing you know like she's she's operating on the very edge you know like is that is that legal maybe maybe not i don't know she's she's hiring homeless people to sell roses on the side of the road yeah 
I, I doubt if she's got all the licensing necessary or any of that. And I have an extra twist at the very end okay, of this. Okay, that's fine. Just I, for the very end. At the very end? Okay, that's fine. But she says, uh, or rather, the, some reports say that she may have passed away in 2004 in Austin, Texas. Right. Now, that's some reports, and that's not really confirmed by any means. But um, some people think that she's still hanging around, that she's maybe still alive. Um, okay. Now, I guess we should talk about the cars. Now, did you want to have that one last thing, Ben, before we talk about where the cars are now? I'm going to wait till the very end. The very end. Okay, so let's talk about where the Dale cars are now, because we've got to the point where, you know, the, the founder of the company now has passed away. Uh, Dale Clift, he eventually he eventually died, I think, in 1981, I believe it was. And they didn't really mention how or why or anything like that. Right. Um, could have been old age. I'm not sure what his age was at the time. But we're getting to the point where, you know, now they've got these properties. They've got three vehicles. Right, yeah, uh, and we know where, we know that two are in the hands of private collectors, mm-hmm. and there's one in the Peterson Auto Museum out there in Los Angeles. However, the one in the Peter Museum, Peterson Museum, is the mock-up, Scott. Yeah, that's the mock-up vehicle. That was the one that was actually in the Encino, California office. It's a famous 4x4. Four four. Yeah, yeah that, <laughs> that's the one. Now, this one has, um, I guess it has an interior, but no drivetrain. And I think it, it's not typically on display. It's mainly stored in the basement, you know, the basement storage area. Sometimes they bring it out. Uh, but again, this is the, the mock-up vehicle. Now, the second one that we know about was sold in um, in an L.A. auction, I guess, to a classic car collector. His name is Bill Mayton. And Bill Mayton, I guess, has an extensive collection of Dale car memorabilia, which is an odd collection to have, really. Right. But I guess he was in the area at the time when all this was going down, and he's a big car collector, so, you know, notable, obscure things like this kind of catches attention as being valuable someday. And he picked up one of the cars at an auction in L.A. at, at some point, and this was the prototype car. This is the one that barely ran, but the one that did run. Right, right. Okay. And then there's the last one. And the last one is in Bill Smith's Museum of American Speed, and this is a, they call it a very crude car. There's no interior to this one. Yep. Um, and this one was actually found on a radiator shop's rotating pole out front, like as a display car. You know how they sometimes put a car on a pole? Right. Outside, just a, a shell of a vehicle. And this Dale was apparently on this, uh, on this radiator shop's display pole for a long, long time before someone said, hey, that's a piece of, you know, automobile history. That's so sad. Let's, man. let's take it down. And I guess this Bill Smith bought it. And um, that's that's the three cars. That's all they have now. Dale Cliff's original car, the original three wheeler, the one that you know was the uh, the the best look at, the yeah, best the, working the, of the genesis bus. of this whole thing. Yeah. You know, the one that had the Naga hide exterior. Um, I think that by they said by ni- the late 1970s, the thing was pretty much just falling apart. And as, you know, as Dale Cliff died in 1981, they just simply lost track of it. They don't know where it ended up. You know, if it just fell apart and it ended up in a scrapyard somewhere, or if somebody has it somewhere, right? You know, maybe in a garage. I don't know. Um, kind of interesting, you know, twist to this whole thing. A- a- another little twist, I guess, is that one of the uh, Southern California hot rod guys, his name is Bill Moon. I think a lot of people will know the name Bill Moon. Right. He bought um, the Seasdale. Or one one of the ones that you know the uh, security commissions or whoever was going after the uh, the corporation there, he bought the one of the Dales and the molds along with it, the one that went to Bill Smith. Bill Smith is in uh, I think it's in Lincoln. He's in Lincoln, Nebraska. But this guy was in Southern California when he bought it, and no one knew what was going on at the time. So Bill Moon buys this and the molds for the car, not knowing that it's going to go to Bill Smith. Um, they said that Bill wanted to create a kit car version of this vehicle, like right. a, like a doom buggy version of the car, and he's going to sell it for eight hundred bucks 
for each one, but it didn't pan out because have you seen the photos of the Dale, Ben? Yeah. Not a very attractive car, really. I mean, it doesn't have a whole lot going for it style-wise. Right. It's kind of a car you would buy for its abilities if those were true. Yeah. So there's this real twisted history to this vehicle. I mean, there's so much that goes on with this. And there's I'm sure there's a, another, you know, 10 or 12 little small stories that we're not covering here. Like, sure. you know, some of the other vehicles that they were going to produce because they had they had plans yeah, the for Ravel. Yeah. The Ravel was another one. Yeah. And there was a what is it called? The Vanagon? Yeah, something like that with a V. Vanagen or Vanagen maybe? So, um, yeah, the idea with those was it was all part of the um, part of the advertising on Carmichael's part to say, we'll start small with this two-seater and then we'll move up to one that has, what, four-seaters? It was a sedan. It's part of the roost, Ben. Yeah, the, 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 uh, the Ravel was going to be a four-seater. And uh, the van again, I'm not sure what that was exactly, but I'm guessing that it had a, a van-like look to it. I don't think anybody's even seen one. I don't know. Uh, have you ever seen the Vanagon? I haven't. I saw one photo online I of a drawing. S- I saw a drawing of the Ravel, but I never saw the Vanagon. So I'm going to have to look at that when we get out of here. But, um, yeah, this is, is part of the roots. It was all part of the story from the very beginning. Now, when you look back, knowing what you know now, you remember that imi- initial meeting at, that happened at that, at, you know, when Dale Clift went out to dinner. In, that random meeting. Where was it? In Burbank or somewhere right like that. Right after the press stories. Y- yeah, Ventura Boulevard. Was that meeting planned? Did she set that up with somebody to uh, to get in on this this cash cow? I guess. And while you're thinking of that, I'm ready to do that last thing. What's the last thing? The rumors of Liz Carmichael's death may have been, uh, as Twain would say, exaggerated. Really? Yeah, because the statement of the death in 2004, uh, I I could only find. A couple of mentions, which is why we had to say reportedly. Yeah. And those mentions were on internet forums and stuff. Mm. So I didn't see a confirmation. Uh, there were other reports as well. I would say of equally negligible validity, uh, that said she was spotted somewhere else in 2009 with a child, like with a kid. Pretty recent. Yeah. Um, very recent, especially considering, you know, um, her her five children from Dallas would be at this point grown ups, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so we actually don't know what happened to Liz Carmichael. Mm. We have people who are reporting different things, but I have not at this point seen a. Um, I have not at this point seen an obituary, no nor have I seen death certificate or anything no like death that. Death certificate, no police report. Hmm. Nothing. Interesting. So, uh, so this whole thing, I mean, there's just so many twists and turns to the story. I mean, mm-hmm. the Dale and its, uh, transgender, what would you, transsexual, um, founder, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just such a weird, weird story. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know how to even sum all this up, Brent Ben, really. It's just such a, a strange time in automotive history. And if you look into it, if you, if you look up the Dale, if you, you mm-hmm. check out some photos of where it is, or if you can go to the, the Peterson Automotive Museum and see one of these in person, you know, one of the three existing vehicles. Um, I don't know. Just tell us what you think about it because yeah. I'm not that impressed by it, obviously. I mean, I don't think many people really were. Of course, there were the initial 5,000 that invested in it in 1975, right, right. but they were investing in a dream and an idea at the time. Now that we know everything that's gone on with this, this story, 
Oh, man, it makes you want to steer clear of anybody that has any kind of offer like this. I mean, it, it makes you very skeptical, doesn't it? Yes. Very cautious with uh, with, your, with your checkbook. And that is where I think we should end this story on this moral. If you're an inventor, if you're an investor, really, if you're anybody, be careful when you hear outrageous claims. If something sounds too good to be true... At least give yourself a second to think about it before you uh, sign away your dreams. Yeah, we've seen a lot of examples of that on the we show. Sure have. I mean, through the the Snopes, you know, site and and you know through this book, this automotive mysteries, myths and rumors revealed book that we we've you know, I guess uh, you know gathered stories from several times. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stories like that in there. So just it's a cautionary tale to anybody. Yep. And with that, we're ending the show. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this strange and twisted tale. Uh, write to us with suggestions for topics you'd like to cover in the future. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can check out this episode as well as every other podcast we've ever done on our website, carstuffshow.com. And you can send us an email directly. Our address is carstuff at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at Viking.com. Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry. We're going to be talking with some of my best friends. I didn't know we were going to go there on this. (laughs) People that I admire. When we say listen to your body, really tune in to what's going on. Authors of books that have changed my life. Now you're talking about sympathy, which is different than empathy. Never forget, it's okay to cry as long as you make it a really good one. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Radhi Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.